Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Each year, In Defense of Animals compiles and publishes their list of the 10 worst U.S. and Canadian zoos for elephants. They've been doing this for 16 years, and the 2019 list has just been released. And I want to tell you that it's so sad to read what's going on in our zoos. Of course, we're all looking forward to the time when this list is no longer needed. But until then, are things getting better for captive elephants? And what can we do to help? So I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Will Anderson with the Elephant Campaign at In Defense of Animals. Welcome back, Will. Thank you, Dr. Laurie. Will, why don't we just start by having you recite the list of the 10 worst zoos for elephants from number 10 to the worst zoo number one so listeners can know who we're talking about. Um, I'll start with a dishonorable mention that we have that's in addition to the 10, and that's Roger Williams Park Zoo Mm -hmm. in Providence, Rhode Island. And then number 10 is Rosamond Gifford Zoo in Syracuse, New York. Nine is San Diego Zoo Global, San Diego, California. Hogle Zoo, Salt Lake City, Utah. Number seven is Edmonton Valley Zoo in Edmonton, Alberta. Number six is Natural Bridge Zoo, Rockbridge County, Virginia. Number five is Louisville Zoo, Louisville, Kentucky. Oregon Zoo is number four, Portland, Oregon. Number three is Bronx Zoo, Bronx, New York. In second place is Zoo Miami, Miami, Florida. And the number one worst zoo for elephants in our 16th year of doing this list is Pittsburgh Zoo in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Will, remind us how this list is assembled. We collect information throughout the year, and it includes inspection reports. Um, We do public records requests, and we get medical records from elephants. We search the media. Uh, we search over the um, zoo websites themselves, and uh, we also refer to um, peer-reviewed uh, scientific literature. And we consult once we get down to our, our our actual group of maybe 20 zoos or so, and then we start consulting with professionals who have worked extensively with elephants. So let's just go to the worst zoo for elephants, which is the Pittsburgh Zoo. What happens at the Pittsburgh Zoo that earns them this distinction? Pittsburgh Zoo is a chronic offender on so many levels and in so many ways. First, understand that Pittsburgh Zoo is in the city of Pittsburgh, but they also have what they uh, have named the International Conservation Center, and that's in Fairhope, Pennsylvania, uh, about an hour's drive from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh Zoo has, again, a long history It includes uh, having used dogs to be aggressive against elephants to herd them, Mm. nipping at the trunks and tails. They opposed the bullhook ban, um, which had still passed anyway uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. They um, have been breeding elephants irresponsibly, um, as is all breeding in zoos. It's It's just simply irresponsible. But they are more egregious than others, and I can go into that. And they're in process right now of breaking up three elephants who have been together for 25 years. Oh, no. Yeah. And they've been together since uh, they survived two different killing operations in South Africa. And as orphans, they were brought up together by a family in Botswana. 
And again, they've been together for 25 years or so. And um, one's been shipped to a zoo already, oh. and another one is pending. Oh, my goodness. Well, we've been following this list every year for a while now, and some zoos seem to make it consistently. Which zoos are these, and why are they not improving? Well, on so many levels. First, you have to, I think it's best to start with the fact that zoo culture, you know, the staff, employees, and boards of directors of zoos, they start with the assumption that it's okay to keep elephants in captivity. And it's hard to break through that. And so they see the world of elephants in captivity far differently than we do. And though we will agree on many, many points, and those zoos and in defense of animals will say, we care about elephants, we're passionate about them. We will still come to loggerheads when it comes to should zoos have elephants in captivity and are zoos honest with the public about what is going on? Because what we know about zoos, we have learned from zoos. And it takes a while to get through that. Zoos as institutions and cultures are really, really difficult to change just because it's so deeply embedded. They've been yeah. doing it for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, Pittsburgh Zoo has been on our list, Louisville, Natural Bridge, Edmonton. Uh, and Pittsburgh, again, is is one of the, the um, more most difficult ones. Oregon Zoo um, is, has been notorious. The Bronx Zoo is notorious, despite the fact that it's run by a very wealthy organization called the Wildlife Conservation Society. They do great science and research field work, but they run the zoo as if science did not exist. Wow. Are there any zoos that have done something really admirable to get off this list and really make things a lot better for their elephants, such as even closing their elephant exhibits? Yes, there have been zoo exhibits who have recognized that elephants, in the least, should not be housed in zoos where there are cold climates. Uh, winters mean that zoos put elephants in barns, uh, essentially buildings that are there for overnight and also during cold spells. The Detroit Zoo, I believe, no, Buffalo Zoo, I think it was, uh, they closed their exhibit and they sent their elephants to a warmer climate. And they said, you know, it, we just simply cannot house them adequately in this climate and in this, you know, the facilities we have. If Pittsburgh Zoo, as far as we can tell, has gone from using bull hooks, at least in public view, to clickers, they um, have refused to abide by safety uh, guidelines for protected contact and a lot of other egregious things that we saw. But you know, sometimes uh, a zoo will send an elephant to a sanctuary when they're so old that you know they, they can't care for them. But um, zoos think that building new exhibits means that they have solved the problems or most of the problems of captivity. And indeed, you know, there are some improvements, but still, elephants die far more quickly at younger ages, on average, in zoos. They suffer diseases um, and issues like foot problems, which oftentimes can lead to death, because the foot problems, as you can imagine, if you start walking differently, if you start your activities 
differently and you can get infections and um, just the mo- lack of mobility are, are problems. And our number one zoo, Pittsburgh, for instance, has concrete floors everywhere. And they, set, they spend their time in barns, uh, again, during the winter. So um, there is some improvement. But the, the problem is, is that when they build these new exhibits, one, they oftentimes make sure that the because these are exhibits um, and not true herds of elephants, they build them so that the public has access to viewing elephants wherever elephants might be when they're outside. So oftentimes you'll see elephants with people standing over them, above them, Mm. and elephants being these deeply emotionally, psychologically complex beings uh, intelligent, um, who in one experiment have proven to be self-aware. You know, they're never, ever left alone. They're always being hovered over. They never, I should say, they seldom have um, their own right to, to choose when and where and what they do. More with Will Anderson with the Elephant Campaign at In Defense of Animals right after the break. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect. If you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day, report it right away. You can be saving a life. Try a vegetarian or even better, a vegan diet, even just beginning with one day a week. Decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them. 
and for the environment, too. Don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals. That's easy these days, and there are apps to guide your purchases. And finally, don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather, and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with In Defense of Animals, Will Anderson. Will, can you Um, give us a little overview of how elephants live naturally in the wild? And can zoos ever approach anything like that? In the wild, I think when it comes to zoos, the things to consider are the herd's social structure and the relationships that gives elephants. Elephants born into a herd, the females stay with the herd for life. And the, the, the herds are in the wild led by females. The males will form bachelor groups and the males sometimes will go solitary. But throughout, these deep relationships cannot be replicated in zoos. Why? For one, elephants are put together from other zoos. They didn't evolve naturally. And so whether an elephant gets along with another elephant or one is more aggressive than the other, there's nowhere to escape. And there's not the, the, the deep decades-long history that elephants have being with one another and uh, living cooperatively with one another, finding water and protecting against predators. And uh, zoos will never replicate that. Elephants have the free range to go where they wish or where they need to be in the wild. And so the ecosystems um, afford them opportunities and challenges, problem solving in ways that zoos cannot replicate. And elephants uh, staying, you know, with the herd, zoos separate these, these, these relationships. Even when elephants are able to, to bond within a zoo setting, zoos then send them on, especially the males, to other places. And zoos keep elephants in solitary confinement, essentially. And that means that the elephant is alone, like the natural bridge zoo, or the elephant is alone with just her calf, as in the Hogel Zoo in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, or there may be three elephants, an elephant and her calf, African elephants, and then an Asian elephant, as you will find at Louisville Zoo. None of the social structure, none of that deep and rich texture and experience and incredibly complex life that elephants in the wild experience will never, ever be replicated in a zoo. There's just not enough land and resources for them to do that. And when a zoo builds a new exhibit and tells everybody how great it is, they have diverted tens of millions. And altogether, in the last decade, hundreds of millions of dollars to build new exhibits in North America trying to call their collections of elephants herds. But instead, that money must go to elephants in their range states, in Asia and in Africa. Elephants are desperately need money so that people can help protect them, do research there non-invasively, and to simply enable elephants to survive. And one of the most 
disgusting things zoos do on a regular basis is say, well, we have to keep elephants in zoos because they're going extinct in the wild. And they are helping do that by diverting money from corporations and public donations and oftentimes tax dollars to have captive zoos when the money is needed to save those elephants facing extinction, the Asian elephants especially. And zoos undermine our understanding and they, they lead people to not really know what has to be done for elephants and and the first being get them out of zoos into accredited sanctuaries here because, you know, we can't change the fact that they're being held captive. Stop breeding them and start paying attention to the elephants in their range states and their home ecosystems. Will many people know about the problems of confining these beautiful, intelligent, social, large animals in zoos, and yet the practice continues. Why? Well, you have to understand, you know, even nonprofits um, are businesses, and uh, zoo staff and directors are human too. They like the, the fact that elephants are there, but they also know that elephants, especially when they're being bred and born, uh, on the rare success that, that happens, draw in a lot more tourists, gate-paying tourists who bring in the money to zoos, money zoos need to survive. They have to operate as a business, and that really colors their judgment. They constantly talk about elephants in a way that isn't really about elephants. It's about them trying to keep their population of captive elephants possible and even surviving. Right now, zoos are importing elephants from the wild, capturing them from the wild still to su- supplant the elephants that are being, um, that are dying in zoos at an early age and at birth and near, near after birth. They're dying in zoos more rapidly than they're being born in North America. And uh, there are one or two exceptions and locations, but the overall zoos are running, have run out of elephants essentially. And they've started looking into getting elephants from um, circuses. And since elephants will sell for two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars, you know, circuses that are going out of business or have extra elephants are now considering and negotiating with zoos for that. And we also know that zoos still want to um, import more elephants, but they've been stymied by a, a new international agreement not to import elephants from Africa. Well, let's go back to the list. Is there anything more you want to share with listeners? I'm still crying over the fact that the Pittsburgh Zoo is breaking up three elephants who've been together for decades. What really strikes me in in the the bigger sense in, in my reviewing this are a few things. One, when you go through the medical records of elephants, so many elephants are so burdened so many ailments, so many problems, among them being arthritis and foot problems that lead to bone infections and pain and suffering. So many zoos seem to take this as being part of doing business. Yes, they, they, they don't like it happening. It makes them upset and sad, but they'll keep doing it. Also, 
I think as I started to say in the beginning, is that we don't doubt that people at zoos who are staff and and others related to to zoos, we don't doubt their compassion and passion for elephants. We don't doubt that they want to see them survive in the wild, but their actions undercut all of that. They seem to be unable to accept the science that they bandy about so often uh, as being what they do. And there's going to be strife between ourselves and zoos. They should understand that zoos will no longer hold elephants and other species in the long run. It's going to end, and it's going to end when they understand that they are not seeing the problem for what it is. These are intelligent people, compassionate people, but they still don't get it. And that's not just unique to them. It's all of us, you know, are selective in what we look at and things that we agree with when we hear about them. You know, if it supports our view, it gets through. If it doesn't, we filter it out. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. We're speaking with Will Anderson. Don't go away. Animals Today, we're speaking with In Defense of Animals, Will Anderson. Will, we had some important regulations and practices agreed to last year that protect elephants, like the AZA banning bullhooks and CITES banning the live trade of African elephants. How will these benefit elephants in zoos? Well, the AZA, um, Associations of Zoos and Aquariums, uh, accredits zoos uh, overall, not just for elephants, for just for overall practices, and they have guidelines and standards which are pushing some zoos to do things differently, to do them in their perspective better. But of course, in our view, it doesn't come even close to solving the issues. I'll give an example. Protected contact is when there's always a barrier between a zoo worker and the elephant. And that protects the elephant because the elephant, you know, doesn't run into uh, a situation in which they're being aggressive towards a a keeper, elephant keeper, as they're called. And it protects, of course, zoo staff from the occasional deaths uh, in zoo staff. But Pittsburgh Zoo, for example, quit the AZA voluntarily because it says we know better, despite the fact that they've had had an elephant uh, keeper there uh, kill one of their staff a few decades ago. And also what we found out is that in many, many instances, the AZA refuses, at least in public and anywhere we can find, they refuse to enforce these standards. The AZA um, requires, you know, three compatible elephants, which is um, nowhere near what's needed, but it's better than a, a, a solitary elephant. But still, you know, Hogel Zoo has had an elephant in her calf since 2015, and that's it. And, and Louisville Zoo is the same thing. So enforcement would help. The AZA is trying to go in the right direction. But even if zoos followed every recommendation from the AZA, it would still be 
a crime against nature to hold elephants in captivity because they cannot meet their their physical, psychological, and emotional needs. If people can understand that when they see an elephant in the zoo, they're looking at a ghost. They are not seeing an elephant. Elephants, without their ecosystems, live very simple, captive lives. Elephants, again, are not elephants without their interacting in lifetime with their ecosystems and all the complexity of those interactions. And that's why they evolved to be so intelligent. They evolved because they adapted to ecosystems, not to captivity. You mentioned CITES, um, yeah, the Convention on International Trade, I'll abbreviate it, um, is a valuable organization, international in scope, and they um, regulate the trade in wildlife between countries that have signed the agreement that created CITES. And recently, they voted to ban the export of African elephants from a few countries that were exporting elephants to zoos in the U.S. and elsewhere. But when they did that ban, the U.S. delegation, headed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, was doing the bidding of the AZA and its member zoos. The AZA actually opposed the ban on the export of elephants from Africa, captures and exports to the U.S. zoos. They, they opposed it. Now, that ban passed anyway. But we have to see, are they going to find a loophole somewhere? Are they going to, you know, we don't know what, the, what their next move is. We just know that zoos are unable to maintain a population of captive elephants without importation, taking elephants from the wild. So, you know, that was really a, a really, we were just so grateful for CITES making that decision. Will, how can people help captive elephants? The first most important thing to help captive elephants is to not go to the zoos. Take the money you would spend on on going to the zoo, getting into the zoo, take that and donate it to organizations that are helping elephants get out of captivity and also to organizations that are working in the field protecting elephants and doing non-invasive research. There's a, a scientist, Dr. Uh, Dr. Wasser. You know, he set up a system in which he found a way to get the genetic fingerprint of elephant ivory. And so, when poachers um, kill elephants and then send that ivory abroad, that elephant ivory can be identified with a genetic fingerprint and with a database he has produced. You know, they can say see where it's sourced from. They can actually trace it back to the actual herd, the actual area, if there's more than one herd, where it came from. And that helps law enforcement. So, so go directly to the problem. And, and if, if you're so inclined, write, letter, inclined to, uh, write letters to the editor. Support organizations like In Defense of Animals as we are trying our darn best um, to, to, to stop this practice of elephant captivity. And um, donate to sanctuaries. There are three elephant sanctuaries in the U.S. There's a brand new one in Georgia. There's another one in Tennessee, TES, called the Elephant Sanctuary. There's another one in California called PAWS. Go online. Learn about elephants. Watch documentaries of wild elephants because that will give everyone a perspective 
on what elephants really are designed to do, and that is to be in their ecosystems, protected by the money that are now that is now going to zoos, protected by the people who are very eager to protect their elephants in many cases, and, and just supports it so elephants in, in, in real fashion and not the false fashion that zoos are offering. Will Anderson, despite the fact I always cry when I speak with you, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Dr. Laurie, for your passion and compassion uh, and everyone listening. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone. You can help elephants. And I thank you for it. Thanks, Will. Thank you. I'm so pleased to have with us now my good friend David Ebert, and I invited him here to tell us about a wonderful organization he co-founded called the Animal Defense Partnership. It's relatively new, but I think you're going to appreciate their work, and later David's also going to tell us about his personal experiences in Africa. Welcome to the program, David. Thank you, Lori. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the invite. Very happy to be on. Oh, we're so happy to have you on the show. David, what is the Animal Defense Partnership, and what motivated you and Joel Littman to start it? Joel and I started the organization in 2016, and the the mission and the purpose of the organization is to provide free legal services to animal protection nonprofits. The goal was to and is to free up what these organizations would otherwise have to pay in legal fees so that that money can be used for other purposes. So we're, in effect, outside general counsel to the the organizations that we represent. That's great. Can you give us an example or a scenario where someone would call you for assistance? Sure. We, we do all kinds of legal work for these organizations, and, and they include um, advocacy organizations as well as sanctuaries. And it's essentially the same kind of work that any organization would have to hire a lawyer for. We we start some organizations, we start, we form them as 501c3s, and we take them through the formation project. The uh, entities that are established could call us for reviewing their bylaws, doing a contract, a real estate issue. Uh, We have a lot of employment issues that come up, particularly from sanctuaries where there are people working at the sanctuaries and some some sort of employment issue will come up. Uh, We do intellectual property clearance, so uh, if somebody's making a documentary and this is something that's going on and they need to get clearance for the clips or the quotes that they're going to use, we take that on and we get those clearances for them. And we also counsel as to nonprofit compliance, nonprofits as you know, have a a host of regulations they have to comply with, and we help organizations do that when there's an issue of uh, can I do something or can I not do something or how do I do something within the the realm of a nonprofit organization, and we would uh, we take that on and help the, the organization see that through. Now, who is doing the actual legal work for these clients? Are they all members of your organization? When we started, it was just me and Joel. Um, Joel's a lawyer. We were both at the same undergraduate and the same law school at the same time, didn't know each other uh, at either, and we live in the same town, and we were introduced by a, a mutual friend. And in the beginning, we really just thought about going to organizations, offering our services, and doing the legal work that would come up. And um, we quickly, quickly learned that the the demand was overwhelming, that the easiest sell I've ever done is to sell free legal services. And we um, we had just more work than we could possibly handle. 
So what we did is we went to uh, several world-class large law firms in the city, in New York City, sorry, and they all do pro bono work as a part of their practices, and we went to the pro bono coordinators of, of these firms and explained what we were doing and asked if they would be interested in working with us. So uh, when we can't handle something inside ourselves, we'll go out to these firms and we'll find a firm that's appropriate to do a project that we don't have the capacity to do. Joel and I were doing the work initially. I, I stopped practicing law last year and no longer do legal work. We hired a wonderful lawyer, Mary Dolka, as our, our senior counsel, and she uh, she's a lawyer who works with us and handles many of the projects. To the extent we need more help than that, we have several terrific volunteers that have come to us to work with us. They do the work, and again, we go to these outside firms if we need if we need more help. David, have you always had a love for animals? Yeah, it, it, it certainly goes way back. And uh, as a kid, I didn't really register at the time, but as a kid, I, I had a lot of problems going to zoos and D-World-type attractions, and I couldn't quite identify why that was, but it, it just never sat sat well. And as I got older and, and found out more and read more, saw movies, Born Free killed me, <laughs> cried, <laughs> cried, through the, cried through the whole thing, or at least uh, some of it, and continued to pursue uh, reading and learning about different issues in the, in the animal world. The Gorillas in the Mist, the, the book and the movie, had a profound impact on me. I, all of it was just um, stunning in a way to me that... that they and Posse went and did this and, and lived with these gorillas and accomplished what she did. Um, and it uh, became more and more of a passion as I was going through my career. I had done projects here and there on a one-off basis, n- never really found something that was quite satisfying. And again, in 2016, decided to formalize what, what I was doing, join with Joel and make this uh, an ongoing, uh, hopefully, institution. We're speaking with David Ebert. He's co-founder of Animal Defense Partnership. We'll be right back. Back to the show, we're speaking with Animal Defense Partnership co-founder David Ebert. Now, listeners should know your organization has been working on behalf of the captive elephant Happy at the Bronx Zoo. Tell us about that. Oh, and by the way, the zoo, that zoo, Bronx Zoo, has earned the distinction once again of being on the list of the 10 worst zoos for elephants published by In Defense of Animals. We, we worked with IDA on, on the... 10 worst list, and the Bronx Zoo has been on there for the past several years. Uh, the Bronx Zoo is, is close to where I live. I live in Westchester, New York, and the Bronx Zoo is, of course, in the Bronx. And there's an elephant there, Happy the Elephant, who has been there for four decades. And since 2006, has basically been in, in isolation under conditions where, where, under which elephants um, should not be living. Happy has the recognition of being the first elephant to pass the mirror self-recognition test, showing that was in 2005, which demonstrates that the animal has self-awareness. 
I could explain how that works, but I can come back to it. Um, and Happy's been living alone for four decades, um, and again in solitary since 2006. It is very hard to go after captive elephants. It's one of the things that we, we work on through our Weeping Elephant Project. But um, we, what we decided to do with Happy, we worked with, uh, again, indefensive animals on this. So one avenue that we pursued was to seek the medical records for Happy and Patty, uh, as well as Maxine, who was euthanized in November 2018, as a way to... Um, I don't mean it quite in this way, but stir up trouble, get people thinking about this, having a way to acquire records that might show that they're not being treated properly in in the zoo. We issued on behalf of IDA, again, a freedom of information law request, which requires public agencies to turn over whatever records are requested by a member of the public. We did this in the Bronx Zoo and the entities that are involved in the Bronx Zoo resisted, which, of course, only heightened our concern. They produced uh, an insignificant number of insignificant records that had nothing to do with their medical health, and we decided to sue them. And uh, we are now in court. In fact, we just argued the motion to compel the agencies to produce the records. Uh, It was just a couple of weeks ago. We don't have a decision on that. But um, they very much do not want to produce these records, um, which makes us very much want to obtain the records. David, you sent me some incredible pictures of yourself in Africa, including one of you alongside a juvenile elephant. What an experience. So why do you go to Africa, and what have you done there? Um, I've been there three times. I was there in 2016, I was there in 2018, and I was there this past year. The, the first two years I went to spend some time with the mountain gorillas in first Ru- Rwanda and then Uganda. The experience of seeing them in Rwanda for the first time was it was just stunning and um, it, it, truly very, very difficult to describe. Three of the gorillas, one adolescent and two babies, touched me, which doesn't happen a whole lot, much less three times. Mm. And it, um, it, it just, it was transformative. That was the first trip to Rwanda. I went back to see the mountain gorillas uh, in Uganda the second year. And this past year, the, the effort was to spend as much time with elephants as I possibly could. The pictures that you saw were at the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. Uh, it was, it's an orphanage on one of the properties that they that they have that elephant shakuru is is 10 years old and and had a um horrific beginning to her life as most of these orphans do and she is not going to be returned to the wild so that she can be uh habituated and become accustomed to people uh, in contact physical contact with people and um you would not do that with the other other elephants that they do intend to return to the wild. They don't want them trusting humans uh, or being comfortable with humans in contact with them. That never has done elephants any good. So I spent a week there and we saw the elephants three times a day in the morning. And uh, at 11 o'clock, they have their mud bath and uh, they then go to the sand sand area and throw dirt and sand all over themselves to to protect them from the sun to cool them and then at night you uh you can see them for their feeding and and i saw them um each of those three times a day for five days and it was 
Um, it was just an extraordinary experience. I had no idea that I'd be able to touch an elephant. I didn't expect to, but um, the keepers there who were just superbly competent and caring people, who, who, the keepers who care for the elephants, um, were comfortable with me making contact, and I did make contact uh, many times with Shakuru and one other elephant that will not be returned to the wild. And it was... Um, I, I get choked up talking about it. It was it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Mm, wow. The last day, um, I was saying goodbye to the keepers, and it was somewhat emotional. We had gotten close over the week and spent a lot of time, and um, I have deep, deep respect for them. And I was saying goodbye to them, and the elephants were going out to the wild. They, the keepers take them out each day, and they spend time in the wild, and they come back at night. Uh, and the elephants were all leaving uh, to go out that, that morning, and they were walking away from us. And uh, this elephant, Shakuru, while she was walking, she sort of turned and, and walked some distance over to me and, and made contact and, and said goodbye. And it was um, it was an overwhelming experience. At, at, the, at the moment, I, I, I didn't even take in. I wasn't really taking in what was happening. And then when she she turned and, and went with the rest of the herd, the, the keepers were, um, you know, do you do you understand what just happened? And um, it was it was Shakuru saying uh, goodbye. Mm. Whether or how she knew it was the last day, maybe she saw the contact with the keepers. Maybe it's a coincidence, but she didn't do that on any of the other days I was there. And um, it's something that um, will just will never leave me. Oh. It just will never leave me. Oh, that story is getting me choked up. What an incredible <laughs> experience. David, how can listeners learn more about the Animal Defense Partnership? Our website is animaldefensepartnership.org, and we try to do a good job of explaining what we do and how people can get in touch with us uh, for help or to volunteer. Uh, we'd love to get as many lawyers as we can to volunteer to work for us, or they can simply write to me uh, at david at animaldefensepartnership.org, and um, I'd be more than happy to talk, write, however I can I can help us move along and help others get the benefit of our services. I would be uh, beyond pleased to do that. David Ebert, thank you for all your good work, and thank you for sharing your experiences with us as well. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Lori. Real, a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Here is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting. And this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. (laughs) 